0: From the Centre for European Reform, this is the CER
1: podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order.
2: Brexit means Brexit,
0: and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sex. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, my name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow at the Center for European Reform. Welcome to the CI interview podcast. This is a yearly podcast where we review the year that has passed and look toward the next year and what it might bring. This is the third year in a row that we're doing this podcast. It tends to be a favorite, not just with me, but also with our audience. I really look forward to it. Today, I'm with Charles Grant, who is the director of the CIA, John Springford, who is our deputy director and Ian Bond, our director of foreign policy. We'll start right away by looking at the year 2018 and some of the work that the CR has done. Um, what I want to do in my first question is look at some of the most important CER publications of the year. Charles, you've published several pieces on Macron's reform proposals and his standing in Europe this year, and you were one of the very first, I think, to diagnose his isolation in Europe.
3: Yes, I mean Macron's probably the only European leader with a lot of ideas about how to reshape the EU. Some of these ideas are traditional French ideas revived such as the idea of a core Europe or concentric circles around that core with France at the heart of the core and the Eurozone at the heart of the core. Others were new ideas in particular for Eurozone reform. He had a lot of ideas on how to create elements of a transfer union to put the eurozone on a more stable basis. He thought that the new German government would help him uh, but Merkel turned out to be very weak for much of the time before the new German government was formed and even after the new German government was formed. She was uh, a weaker leader than she had been before and she hasn't been able to respond to many of his ideas. There was the so-called Messeberg Declaration in June between France and Germany, sketching out some very modest proposals for reform. But then, as soon as that was agreed, up come the the New Hanseatic League, a Dutch-led group of countries of fiscal Austerians who don't like many ideas about a transfer union, who shot down many of those ideas. So they haven't yet come to fruition to any great extent. And there's a massive frustration in the Elysee about Germany not following French ideas on Eurozone reform. And at the end of the year, one does see a little more tension between France and Germany. Germany than usual, not only on Eurozone reform, but also on how to respond to Trump and his threat of a trade war against Europe. So there are tensions on defence, even some tensions on Brexit, with the Germans getting frustrated with France's very hard line at the end of the Brexit talks on fish and rule of law. So Macron ends the ends the year uh, rather frustrated with Germany's ability to respond to him and help him in the reform of the EU.
0: Charles, you've mentioned Trump, which leads us on to some of the work that you, Ian, have done this year about the transatlantic relationship, how to adapt it, how to save it potentially. How have your views on this developed over the course of the year 2018?
2: Well I'm just back from Washington and uh, I think there is really grounds for serious concern about the state of the transatlantic relationship. The Trump administration has consistently attacked the Europeans and, in effect, has done more to criticise the US's European allies than any of America's adversaries. And that remains a problem. If one looks at the NATO summit in July in Brussels... Trump more or less derailed what was supposed to be a gathering to show solidarity to Ukraine and Georgia, uh, Ukraine in particular in the face of Russian pressure, to criticize his European allies for failing to spend enough on, on defense. Now, he's not wrong to say that Europeans need to spend more on defense, but the way that he sets about it and the linkages that he makes between trade and defense effort are undermining... Confidence on both sides of the Atlantic in the transatlantic relationship. I guess if there is a a bright spot, it is that at least within Congress, people realize that the transatlantic relationship remains important and that on most things, America and its partners have more in common than separates them. But even so, I found that there is a lot to worry about in the, uh, the position of the administration and its general attitude towards multilateral organizations, whether that's NATO, the EU, the UN, or indeed any other international cooperation. So, yeah, I'm ending the year as as worried as I began it in terms of the transatlantic relationship.
0: John, you have published some seminal original analysis on the cost of Brexit this year. Would you say that that was the most important publication of the year for you? Well,
1: it was certainly the most important important publication personally because it got quite a lot of media hits and so there's a there's a kind of positive and negative story to this the positive one is that we got a fair amount of attention for it and I should say it's not that seminal I've originally borrowed a model for some academics and then I improved it but you know academics tend to be quite bad at selling their own research so Essentially, the research found that the cost of Brexit so far has been between 2 to 2.5% of GDP, something like that. And a lot of people, like the Financial Times and other serious people, thought that it was quite a lot lower than that. And I think we did move the dial on the debate. The Office of Budget Responsibility, the UK's fiscal watchdog, uh, cited the research um, and it got quite a lot of hits um, and has made it into the debate. The negative thing about it is that I don't think the fact that it made it into the debate has made a great deal of difference to what's happened. And it might just be worth having a think about that. The British economy has done reasonably well, if you think about it, in terms of just jobs and unemployment. In fact, it's done very well. We've got the lowest unemployment rate that we've had for a very, very long time. However, people are poorer in terms of the income that they are getting from those jobs than they would have been had Britain not voted to leave. The issue with that, of course, is that it's very difficult to convince people of counterfactuals. It's very difficult to say to somebody, oh, you would have been richer if you'd done this other thing, because obviously that path of action is not visible to us. So in terms of how that plays out, for the rest of Brexit, if Britain indeed does Brexit. The potential for there being an enormous backlash against the economic costs of Brexit, I think, are relatively small, if we have a smooth, orderly Brexit of the type which Theresa May is trying to push for. I think if we have a no-deal Brexit, that the backlash might be quite a lot stronger. But I think that our research at least suggests that a smooth Brexit might be politically possible, which is not something that we really knew at the beginning of this process. We thought that it might have much larger and much more disruptive economic effects than it appears to have had so far.
0: Sticking with 2018 a little bit longer, a question that we traditionally ask in the end-of-year podcast is about issues that Europe should have paid more attention to in the last year. And In the last two years, we've had answers like North Korea, the American elections, Syria and the Middle East. Who would like to take this question this year? Ian, how about you?
2: Well, I think one issue which has come up the EU's agenda but probably still deserved to have more attention is the rule of law. There have been rule of law issues in Poland and Hungary, but there have also been rule of law issues in other countries, including Romania, to some extent Malta, where there is still no progress on the uh, investigation into the murder of of an investigative journalist who was looking into government corruption in in Malta. And the EU has struggled with the tools that it has. What's been quite interesting towards the end of the year is that Poland, in a dispute with the European Court of Justice, has accepted the the court's ruling. So that has, in a sense, stepped back from the, the brink. But we are nowhere close to solving the problems of rule of law in Hungary, where the Central European University, a, a well-regarded regional university, has been forced to leave Budapest. So that seems to me to be an issue that deserved more attention in 2018
1: and is likely to need
2: more attention in 2019.
0: John, what are issues that Europe should have paid more attention to?
1: Well, I think the the number one issue for me is climate change. One of the difficulties of having the kind of populist moment that we're currently in is that it makes politicians even more myopic than they usually are. We're dealing with lots of clashes and contention um, about important issues, don't get me wrong, but a lot of political energy is being put into Very short term issues. Think of, you know, the Brexit withdrawal agreement has completely consumed um, UK political life and the standoff over the budget in Italy. um, These kinds of issues are taking centre stage. But in a lot of ways, the last year or the last few years have been very bad for climate. Let's just think about what the EU's targets are. There are a 20% cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. It's a possibility that might get close but it's quite unlikely. Then there's a 40% cut by 2030. As things stand, that seems extremely unlikely. And the UN body, which oversees the global climate change framework, thinks that that 40% cut is not going to be enough to meet the 1.5% rise in temperatures which they want to see. To do that, to get even close to that, there would have to be a 55% cut needed by 2030. And if we think about what these steps that are needed in order to be able to achieve that, you've got to be throwing the kitchen sink at it, really. The emissions trading scheme, the sort of flagship... European initiative um, is not really working. The cost of carbon is very low still under that. Climate targets are working a bit as we have seen industrial emissions fall um, from 1990 levels, but they haven't fallen as quickly as we want. And so then you're into the world of carbon taxes. The Gilets Jaunes, one of the things that has upset them most is the increase in fuel tax, which President Macron has suggested, which shows that even fairly modest measures to try and force people to internalise the cost of their own carbon emissions is very, very difficult. On an optimistic note, uh, we have seen the cost of renewables come down very quickly and technological development is very fast in that sector. So if there's a way for Europe to funnel more investment into technology and engineering to try and reduce carbon, carbon emissions, that seems to be the way to go.
0: Right. I think you make a very good case that this should be something that Europe should be paying more attention to in the year to come. We're going to turn to 2019 now, looking ahead. And uh, I'll ask all three of you to look at some of the developments and events that will shape European politics in 2019. Charles, why don't you start?
3: Well, I think the European elections are going to be very important in May 2019. Probably we'll see populist forces, of, particularly of the right but also of the left, do better than they've ever done before they may well win, say, 30% of the votes. That doesn't mean they take over the EU and stop the EU working, because the more moderate forces will club together as they've done in the past. The centre-right, the centre-left, the Liberals, the Greens, and so on, will make sure that business can be done. But this will be a symbolic reminder to European rulers that the populist beast hasn't gone away. the dragon growls every now and then, sometimes makes more noise than other times. The migration crisis has been in abatement in the last year to some degree. The numbers coming in to uh, Greece and Italy have declined. The numbers going to Spain have risen somewhat. This has driven the populist beast more than anything else. But we may see, you, we just don't know, a rise in, in irregular migration into the EU at some point uh, in the 2019. You just never know. That this is a problem that can only be ameliorated. It will never go away. But also, we're going to see, perhaps, I, I defer to John on this, but an economic downturn seems to be coming, which won't help fight off the populist dragon. And we'll see uh, very clever leaders, and they do have very clever leaders, populists like Salvini in Italy, banging the populist drum, uh, making a lot of noise about the eurozone, budget deficits, bureaucrats of Brussels bossing him around, and then the the threat from migration. And as Ian mentioned, the rule of law issues in Poland and Hungary are are also part of the same problem, really. So I think uh, the European elections will symbolise that the EU is on the defensive. As I said before, the EU is on the defensive. It's weakened by the fact that it lacks strong, dynamic, influential leaders defending the status quo. You have Macron and Merkel who are still there, but you have other people like Salvini and Orbán who are also very clever and capable on on the other side. And I think if there's one particular worry that I have about 2019, and John may say something about the economics, it's Italy, because Italy is too big to ignore. Uh, You can kind of ignore Hungary to some degree if Hungary behaves badly. Italy is an enormous country. It's too big to bail out. The Commission is extremely worried about its banking system still. It worries that uh, the banks are too big to bail out, and that ultimately, if if the banks get into a crisis, it could infect the rest of the eurozone banking system then there's the budget arguments and the optimists tell me in Italy who know Salvini tell me that don't worry he's just playing a game leading up to the European elections and after the European elections he'll moderate what he says about the ability to have a a bigger budget deficit than Brussels wants and he'll, he'll play the game others are more pessimistic others say he's really keen to get Italy out of the euro in the long run that's where he's aiming for so I think if you have a country that doesn't play the game and doesn't accept the authority of Brussels which may be the case in Italy very It's very, very worrying for the future. And I see the danger in 2019 as as being a rudderless, leaderless Europe with uh, France and Germany not up to their usual strength. Italy weakened in European terms by its populist government. Poland, rather, a special case isolated from the rest of the EU on rule of law issues. Spain with a very weak government and Britain on the way out. So Mr. Juncker and Mr. Tusk coming to the end of their presidencies, both quite weak figures anyway. So as Europe enters a very difficult year, I see a massive dearth of leadership, which is very worrying.
0: Right, the EU and the defensive and the parliamentary elections and Italy as a challenge to come. John, from the perspective of an economist, are these some of the developments that you also see shaping 2019?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I'll just take up a few points from Charles' very good argument about Italy. So there is a big standoff with Italy over the budget. And obviously Salvini is using this as a mechanism to drive support for the League. The big question, I suppose, is, well, France and Germany... They broke the budget rules in the mid two thousands um, after the recession, the early two thousands recession. France and Spain have broken the rules repeatedly since the Great Recession, the financial crisis, and the Euro crisis. So, what m- what makes it different with Italy? There are a few things. One is obviously that Italy has an enormous debt burden, as Charles mentioned. Second, it's just about timing. So, the the reason why Italy is so scary is because, um, you know, its growth has ground to a halt. It may well enter recession this year. You are supposed to raise budget deficits when you have a recession, but not when you're just going along at your structural rate of growth. And if Italy's structural rate of growth is somewhere between zero and 0.5, um, which is possible, uh, then the populist forces in Italy are not going to go away. And the Commission, you know, according to the letter of the law, is perfectly right to say to Italy, look, you know, you're supposed to be running. A primary surplus here, not a deficit, um, in order to be able to get your enormous debt stock down and prevent that from having some real costs uh, for the rest of the eurozone. But obviously Salvini has climbed very high up his pole um, and it might be difficult for him to climb down. I just want to make one last point, which is about the rules-based framework for economic governance uh, in the EU, which um, is a horribly jargony term. But it basically points to the idea that the EU works to constrain member states for the good of the whole. And one of the problems with the budget rules has been that they have been relatively pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical. Um, so when a recession comes, quite quickly the rules kick in and, and tell governments to reduce their budget deficits. If there was one thing that the EU and the Eurozone could do, it would be to make its budget rules more countercyclical rather than pro-cyclical. The problem at the moment is that they mandate austerity very quickly after a recession while the economy is still weak. And it would be a good idea to allow there to be more slack in the system so that governments can put together some spending when the private sector is weak. A good way to do that would be to allow more investment under the budget rules so that countries can invest more and not break the budget rules if they do so. But if they spend on pensions and so forth, then that's not allowed. So that would be my one reform that I think the EU and the Eurozone could make.
0: Can't stop our researchers from proposing reforms. Great, yeah. Charles. Just,
3: just to, to, to add to what John said, I mean, I think the Commission's in an impossible position, honestly, because it has to uphold the rule of law or the whole system of Eurozone governance will collapse if a big country like Italy is allowed to break the rules on the size of its budget deficit. And yet it knows perfectly well, the Commission, that Salvini wants to be attacked, he wants to be bossed around by the Brussels bureaucrats because that will win him more votes in the European elections. And as John has said, the EU's rules are not actually ideal at all. They're not very good rules. So those people in Italy who resist being bossed around by the Commission, who don't like the austerity that was imposed on them in recent years, have a, have a point. So it's a very, the Commission's in a very, very difficult position. But as, as I said earlier, Macron understands some of the macroeconomic issues affecting the Eurozone. He would like fiscal policy to be considered at European level, not at just national level, as the Germans generally want. And I think in the long run, some of these ideas that Macron has for reform of the Eurozone would make it easier for countries like Italy to grow. The trouble is that Salvini's behaviour is so difficult. He's behaving as a pariah, as the black sheep of the family. That It's very hard for countries like France to team up with him to try and push for Eurozone reform. The saddest thing about the government in Italy, I think, in many ways, is that Whatever chances Macron has of persuading the Germans to accept eurozone reform and a eurozone budget and elements of a transfer union are greatly weakened by Italy's populist government, because the Germans will say, "We don't want to. Why should we create a transfer union and help the South if if, if the money is going to be misspent by a, a joker like Salvini?" So, so long as Italy has a very difficult government that the EU can't easily deal with, it's hard to see eurozone reform getting very far.
0: Right. Some really interesting thoughts on the Italy challenge to the EU in the next year. Ian, from a EU foreign policy perspective, what are some of the events and the developments that will shape European politics?
2: I I think 2019 we're still going to be facing the same three challenges, which is to say relations with the US, relations with Russia and relations with China. And perhaps China is moving up the agenda. The optimism about uh, the direction of Chinese travel, its integration into the world economy and so on is is fading. Uh, Xi Jinping is proving to be much more assertive in the foreign policy area. We're still having a lot of issues over trade, over cyber issues and so on. And that seems to me to be something that Europe is going to have to pay more attention to in 2019. You're already seeing signs of that with the efforts to introduce investment screening or at least to get European countries to screen investments uh, from abroad and especially from China more consistently across the board. So that's something which I think will have to be watched. With Trump, he is under a lot of pressure at home now because of the Mueller investigation into his links or his campaign's links with Russia. And I think he will continue to lash out abroad and the Europeans have been a convenient whipping boy. So I think particularly if I were the German car industry, I would be expecting more trouble from from Trump this year. But Russia, I think, does pose some very serious problems. We've seen towards the end of this year more tension around Ukraine with the incident at the entrance to the Sea of Azov where Russia captured three Ukrainian ships. And there are signs of a military buildup again around Ukraine. I think Russia is going to be a big problem for Europeans in the year to come. And it's one where, again, the populists have tended to be much closer to Putin than mainstream parties have in in the past. So this is something which um, is likely to continue to cause problems. I'm sure that the Russians will try to ensure that their favoured parties and candidates do well in the European Parliament elections. There are efforts on the part of the EU to make sure that it's harder to interfere with those elections, efforts to counter disinformation and so on. But it's still quite a, a major challenge.
0: Okay. So another question that comes up every year in these end of year podcasts and that is maybe the biggest challenge to all of you every time is what are your causes for optimism in twenty nineteen? What do you feel optimistic about, John?
1: Okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about something which makes me feel optimistic but doesn't really have anything to do with the EU, although... In a kind of tangential way, it does. So my wife is a scientist and she's been collaborating with other researchers at Imperial College in London on some fancy new materials which trick cells into thinking that this isn't a foreign object. This is actually just part of the cellular matrix. So they don't trigger immune responses. And it's possible eventually after there's enough testing and you know manufacturing has been set up to make these materials that they could be used on Implants to ensure that people can have implants without having to have them replaced all the time, or have any kind of immune-suppressing drugs. There's lots of technological progress and scientific progress which is going on all the time, all over the place. I um, mean, it's just worth thinking about why um, and what that means for sensible governance. The reason why the UK has an extremely good science sector is because it's well-funded, has a clear goal, which is to develop new techniques, new science find new things, and very clear incentives on scientists that they should use the money which they are given to achieve those goals. So you have a very strict framework, it's well-funded, and you have strong incentives. There are some crossovers to how centrists, people on the centre-left and the centre-right, people who are trying to push back against the surge of populism, there are some readovers. One is that the state should be well-funded, and that we should not denude the state in the name of in the name of austerity. Therefore, raising tensions, making poorer people poorer, and creating a great deal of hostility towards the political class as a whole. The second is that you should have some clear goals which you want and. For me, the goals for the European Union are to make us more secure, more prosperous and also to deal with any kind of long term threats which require coordinated action among nation states. Another read over is that you want to make incremental progress that, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily if you don't make huge changes, but just having step changes towards goals is a good thing. Um, You're more likely to take people with you if you can do that. And the final thing is sensible experimentation. If something doesn't work, then you should change it. And this is, for me, where the EU could learn its biggest lessons. Um, There have been some clearly very big policy failures over the last decade, particularly in macroeconomics. The ECB um, tightened monetary policy in the teeth of the euro crisis and was far too slow to get on with quantitative easing and to act as a lender of last resort to the eurozone. The budget rules have been pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical and so if something is not working you change it the ECB has changed and now it's time to try and reform the EU's fiscal framework to make it more effective for Europeans as a whole.
0: Brilliant some tech and science optimism and some perspective for the EU very nice John. Ian causes for optimism and foreign policy.
2: I have to admit I'm struggling um, to come up with causes for optimism in foreign policy. And I think, you know, one thing I would say in terms of um, not carrying on doing things that aren't working is that at the moment the British government seems determined to carry on pressing on with Brexit despite the fact that very clearly it is not working at the moment. In terms of the foreign policy challenges, there is nothing that at the moment looks as though it is heading in the direction of a settlement, let's say. The progress that was made earlier in the year with North Korea has stalled. Uh, US withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal means that's going in the wrong direction. And as I indicated earlier, the tension is growing around Ukraine. So I'm afraid on most of the main foreign policy issues, at the moment, I think 2019 looks like being at least as bad and probably worse than 2018.
3: Possibly Armenia maybe going in the right direction. It's had elections recently, which went fairly well, I believe.
0: Great, Charles, helping you out on foreign policy optimism, very nice. Uh, What about you, reasons to be optimistic in 2019?
3: Well, one, one sort of perverse reason to be optimistic is that although the British have been guinea pigs for the experiment of what happens when you leave the European Union, the British are going to be seen to have gone through a pretty awful experience by the time they get out, assuming they get out, which seems more likely than not at the time we're speaking. Brexit's going to hurt. It's going to hurt quite badly. We don't know how much it's going to hurt. John's pointed out already we've lost 2.5% of GDP. Assuming we get some sort of Canada-type deal in the end, it'll be a bigger loss of GDP, significantly bigger by by 2030. So other countries are going to be inoculated against the danger of leaving the EU because they're going to see that the British have a pretty difficult and painful experience. I think the EU has been strengthened by Brexit in many ways. They've kept a fairly united line throughout the Brexit talks. Support for European integration has actually risen in most EU states since the Brexit referendum in June 2016. So I think one source for optimism is that Brexit is teaching Europeans a lesson. Don't try and leave the EU or it'll be painful if you try.
0: So truly European rather than a British perspective from you there Charles, which leads me on to the last traditional question which is um, for you Charles also. What are your plans, what are our plans for the Centre for European Reform in 2019?
3: Well, in 2018, we celebrated our 20th birthday, and we're looking forward to the next 20 years. We have two missions. The most important mission remains what it always has been, which is to come up with ideas and policies for reforming the EU so that it works better, is, is more effective in the way it achieves its objectives, which, as John said earlier, are achieving prosperity and security for European citizens. So that's remains. Our second objective has been to improve the quality of the UK-EU relationship, and that remains the same even if Brexit happens on time. Uh, We're going to come up with a lot of ideas for how the EU-UK relationship can be as close as possible politically and economically within the political constraints that everyone has to operate under. In order to remind people we're a European think tank working mainly on European issues, not a British think tank looking at Brexit, we've opened our office in Berlin a few months ago, which you were part of, Sophia. We have two senior researchers in Berlin, we have two senior researchers in Brussels. So a lot of our events and the work we do and the projects we undertake are actually focused on our Berlin and our Brussels offices, though London also remains important. We will continue to do what we've done for the past 20 years. We'll come up with sober, rigorous, serious ideas for reform. We're not a flashy think tank. We try and be objective in what we do, uh, and we'll keep working on the, the way we've worked for the last 20 years, for the next 20 years, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Thank you very much. I look forward to that. And thank you, all of you, for coming on. This has really been a fantastic discussion, a real tour de force of the European agenda in politics, economics, and foreign policy. We'll revisit some of this year's predictions next year, so you can look forward to that. And uh, until then, happy holidays, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.